8. Desauthoring alike incited, men, women, and children were indiscriminately slaughtered, till the streets ran in gore, darkness increased the destruction, for, when the morning dawned the crusaders found themselves with their swords at the breasts of their fellow soldiers, whom they had mistaken to be foes, the Turkish commander fled, first to the citadel, and, that becoming insecure, to the mountains, whither he was pursued and slain, and his gory head brought back to Antioch as a trophy, at daylight the massacre ceased, and the crusaders gave themselves up to plunder, popular delusions, angling, go, take thine angle, and with practiced line, light as the gossamer, the currents weep, and if thou failest in the calm, still deep, in the rough eddy may a prize be thine, say bored and lucky where the sunbeams shine, beneath the shadow where the waters creep perchance the monarch of the brook shall leap for fate is ever better than design, still persevere, the giddiest breeze that blows for thee may blow with fame and fortune rife, be prosperous, and what recketh it arose out of some pebble with the stream at strife, or that the light wine dallied with the boughs, thou art successful such is human life, double day, Mariana, Mariana in the moated grange, measure for measure, with blackest moss the flower plots were thickly crusted, one and all, the rusted nails fell from the knots that held the peach to the garden wall, the broken sheds looked sad and strange uplifted was the clinking latch, weeded and worn the ancient thatch, upon the lonely moated grange, she only said, my life is dreary he cometh not, she said, she said, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, her tears fell with the dews and even her tears fell ere the dews were dried, she could not look on the sweet heaven, either at morn nor eventide, after the flitting of the bats, when thickest dark did trance the sky, she drew her casement curtain by, and glanced athwart the glooming flats, she only said, the night is dreary he cometh not, she said, she said, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, upon the middle of the night, waking, she heard the night fowl crow, the cock sung out in outer air light, from the dark fen the oxen's low came to her, without hope of change, in sleep she seemed to walk forlorn, till cold winds woke the grey-eyed morn about the lonely moated grange, she only said, the day is dreary he cometh not, she said, she said, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, about a stone cast from the wall a sluice with blackened water slept, and o'er it many, round and small, the clustered marish mosses crept, hard by, a poplar shook hallway, all silver green with gnarled bark, for leagues, no other tree did dark the level waste, the rounding gray, she only said, my life is dreary he cometh not, she said, she said, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, and ever, when the moon was low, and the shrill winds were up and away in the white curtain, to and fro she saw the gusty shadow sway, but when the moon was very low, and wild winds bound within their cell, the shadow of the poplar fell upon her bed, across her brow, she only said, the night is dreary he cometh not, she said, she said, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, all day, within the dreary house, the doors upon their hinges creaked, the blue fly sang I the pain, the mouse behind the mouldering wainscot shrieked, or from the crevice peered about, old faces glimmered through the doors, old footsteps trod the upper floors, old voices called her from without, she only said, my life is dreary he cometh not, she said, she said, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, the sparrows chirp on the roof, the slow clock ticking, 
and the sound which to the wooing wind aloof the poplar made, did all confound her sense, but most she loathed the hour when the thick-noted sunbeam lay athwart the chambers, and the day was sloping towards his western bower, then said she, I am very dreary he will not come, she said, she wept, I am weary, weary, I would that I were dead, Tennyson, rise of poetry among the Romans, the Romans, in the infancy of their state, were entirely rude and unpolished, they came from shepherds, they were increased from the refuse of the nations around them, and their manners agreed with their original, as they lived wholly on tilling their ground at home, or on plunder from their neighbors, war was their business, and agriculture the chief art they followed, long after this, when they had spread their conquests over a great part of Italy, and began to make a considerable figure in the world even their great men retained a roughness, which they raised into a virtue, by calling it Roman spirit, and which might often much better have been called Roman barbarity, it seems to me, that there was more of austerity than justice, and more of insolence than courage, in some of their most celebrated actions, however that be, this is certain, that they were at first a nation of soldiers and husbandmen, roughness was long an applauded character among them, and a sort of rusticity reigned, even in their senate house, in a nation originally of such a temper as this, taken up almost always in extending their territories, very often in settling the balance of power among themselves, and not infrequently in both these at the same time, it was long before the politer arts made any appearance, and very long before they took root or flourished to any degree, poetry was the first that did so, but such a poetry as one might expect among a warlike, busied, and polished people, not to inquire about the songs of triumph mentioned even in Romulus's time, there was certainly something of poetry among them in the next reign, under Numa, a prince who pretended to converse with the Muses as well as with Egeria, and who might possibly himself have made the verses which the Salian priests sang in his time, Pythagoras, either in the same reign, or if you please some time after, gave the Romans a tincture of poetry as well as of philosophy, for Cicero assures us that the Pythagoreans made great use of poetry and music, and probably they, like our old druids, delivered most of their precepts in verse. Indeed, the chief employment of poetry in that and the following ages, among the Romans, was of a religious kind. Their very prayers, and perhaps their whole liturgy, was poetical. They had also a sort of prophetic or sacred writers, who seem to have written generally in verse, and were so numerous that there were above two thousand of their volumes remaining even to Augustus's time. They had a kind of plays too in these early times, derived from what they had seen of the Tuscan actors when sent for to Rome to expiate a plague that raged in the city, these seem to have been either like our dumb shows, or else a kind of extempore farces a thing to this day a good deal in use all over Italy and in Tuscany, in a more particular manner, add to these that extempore kind of jesting dialogues begun at their harvest and vintage feasts and carried on so rudely and abusively afterwards as to occasion a very severe law to restrain their licentiousness, and those lovers of poetry and good eating, who seem to have attended the tables of the richer sort, much like the old provincial poets, or our own British bards, and sang there to some instrument of music the achievements of their ancestors, and the noble deeds of those who had gone before them, to inflame others to follow their great examples. The names of almost all these poets sleep in peace with all their works, and, if we may take the word of the other Roman writers of a better age, it is no great loss to us, 
one of their best poets represents them as very obscure and very contemptible, one of their best historians avoids quoting them as too barbarous for politer ears, and one of their most judicious emperors ordered the greatest part of their writings to be burnt, that the world might be troubled with them no longer. All these poets, therefore, may very well be dropped in the account, there being nothing remaining of their works, and probably no merit to be found in them if they had remained. And so we may date the beginning of the Roman poetry from Livy's Andronicus, the first of their poets of whom anything does remain to us, and from whom the Romans themselves seem to have dated the beginning of their poetry, even in the Augustan age. The first kind of poetry that was followed with any success among the Romans, was that for the stage. They were a very religious people, and stage plays in those times made no inconsiderable part in their public devotions, it is hence, perhaps that the greatest number of their oldest poets, of whom we have any remains, and, indeed, almost all of them, are dramatic poets. Stance, character of Julius Caesar. Caesar was endowed with every great and noble quality that could exalt human nature, and give a man the ascendant in society, formed to excel in peace as well as war, provident in counsel, fearless in action, and executing what he had resolved with an amazing celerity, generous beyond measure to his friends placable to his enemies, and for parts, learning, and eloquence, scarce inferior to any man, his orations were admired for two qualities, which are seldom found together, strength and elegance, Cicero ranks him among the greatest orators that Rome ever bred, and Quintilian says, that he spoke with the same force with which he thought, and if he had devoted himself to the bar, would have been the only man capable of rivaling Cicero, nor was he a master only of the politer arts, but conversant also with the most abstruse and critical parts of learning, and, among other works which he published, addressed two books to Cicero on the analogy of language, or the art of speaking and writing correctly. He was a most liberal patron of wit and learning, wheresoever they were found, and out of his love of those talents, would readily pardon those who had employed them against himself, rightly judging, that by making such men his friends, he should draw praises from the same fountain from which he had been aspersed. His capital passions were ambition and love of pleasure, which he indulged in their turns to the greatest excess, yet the first was always predominant to which he could easily sacrifice all the charms of the second, and draw pleasure even from toils and dangers, when they ministered to his glory, for he thought tyranny, as Cicero says, the greatest of goddesses, and had frequently in his mouth a verse of Euripides which expressed the image of his soul, that if right and justice were ever to be violated, they were to be violated for the sake of reigning. This was the chief end and purpose of his life the scheme that he had formed from his early youth, so that, as Cato truly declared of him, he came with sobriety and meditation to the subversion of the Republic. He used to say, that there were two things necessary to acquire and to support power soldiers and money, which yet depended mutually upon each other, with money. Therefore, he provided soldiers, and with soldiers extorted money, and was, of all men, the most rapacious in plundering both friends and foes, sparing neither prince, nor state, nor temple, nor even private persons who were known to possess any share of treasure. His great abilities would necessarily have made him one of the first citizens of Rome, but, disdaining the condition of a subject, he could never rest till he made himself a monarch. In acting this last part, his usual prudence seemed to fail him, as if the height to which he was mounted had turned his head and made him giddy, for, 
by a vain ostentation of his power, he destroyed the stability of it, and, as men shorten life by living too fast, so by an intemperance of reigning he brought his reign to a violent end. Middleton, Siege of Tyre, it appeared to Alexander a matter of great importance, before he went further, to gain the maritime powers, upon application, the kings of Cyprus and Phoenicia made their submission, only Tyre held out, he besieged that city seven months, during which time he erected vast mounds of earth, plied it with his engines, and invested it on the side next the sea with two hundred galleys, he had a dream in which he saw Hercules offering him his hand from the wall, and inviting him to enter, and many of the Tyrians dreamt that Apollo declared he would go over to Alexander, because he was displeased with their behavior in the town. Hereupon, the Tyrians, as if the god had been a deserter taken in the fact, loaded his statue with chains, and nailed the feet to the pedestal, not scrupling to call him an Alexanderist. In another dream, Alexander thought he saw a satyr playing before him at some distance, and when he advanced to take him, the savage eluded his grasp. However, at last, after much coaxing and taking many circuits round him, be prevailed with him to surrender himself. The interpreters, plausibly enough, divided the Greek name for satyr into two. Satyros, which signifies Tyre is dying. They still show us a fountain near which Alexander is said to have seen that vision. About the middle of the siege, he made an excursion against the Arabians who dwelt about Antilibanus. Here he ran a great risk of his life, on account of his preceptor Lysimachus, who insisted on attending him being, as he alleged, neither older nor less valiant than Phoenix, but when they came to the hills and quitted their horses to march up on foot, the rest of the party got far before Alexander and Lysimachus. Night came on, and, as the enemy was at no great distance, the king would not leave his preceptor, borne down with fatigue and with the weight of years, therefore, while he was encouraging and helping him forward, he was insensibly separated from the troop, and had a cold and dark night to pass in an exposed and dismal situation. In this perplexity, he observed at a distance a number of scattered fires which the enemy had lighted, and depending upon his swiftness and activity as well as being accustomed to extricate the Macedonians out of every difficulty, by taking a share in the labor and danger, he ran to the next fire. After having killed two of the barbarians who watched it, he seized a lighted brand and hastened with it to his party, who soon kindled a great fire. The sight of this so intimidated the enemy, that many of them fled, and those who ventured to attack him were repulsed with considerable slaughter. By this means he passed the night in safety. According to the account we have from Sharis, as for the siege, it was brought to a termination in this manner. Alexander had permitted his main body to repose themselves after the long and severe fatigues they had undergone, and ordered only some small parties to keep the Tyrians in play. In the meantime, Aristander, his principal soothsayer, offered sacrifices, and one day, upon inspecting the entrails of the victim, he boldly asserted among those around him that the city would certainly be taken that month, as it happened to be the last day of that month. His assertion was received with ridicule and scorn, the king perceiving he was disconcerted, and making it a point to bring the prophecies of his minister to completion, gave orders that the day should not be called the 30th, but the 28th of the month, at the same time he called out his forces by sound of trumpet, and made a much more vigorous assault than he at first intended, the attack was violent, and those who were left behind in the camp quitted it, to have a share in it and to support their fellow soldiers. 
insomuch that the Tyrians were forced to give out, and the city was taken that very day. Langhorn's Plutarch, the Falls of Niagara, the river Niagara takes its rise in the western extremity of Lake Erie, and, after flowing about 34 miles, empties itself into a Lake Ontario. It is from half a mile to three miles broad, its course is very smooth, and its depth considerable. The sides above the cataract are nearly level, but below the falls, the stream rushes between very lofty rocks, crowned by gigantic trees. The great body of water does not fall in one complete sheet, but is separated by islands, and forms three distinct falls. One of these, called the Great Fall, or, from its shape, the Horseshoe Fall, is on the Canadian side. Its beauty is considered to surpass that of the others, although its height is considerably less. It is said to have a fall of 165 feet, and in the inn, which is about 300 yards from the fall, the concussion of air caused by this immense cataract is so great, that the window frames, and, indeed, the whole house, are continually in a tremulous motion, and in winter, when the wind drives the spray in the direction of the buildings, the whole scene is coated with sheets of ice. The great cataract is seen by few travelers in its winter garb. I had seen it several years before in all the glories of autumn. It's encircling woods, happily spared by the remorseless hatchet, and tinted with the brilliant hues peculiar to the American fall. Now the glory had departed, the woods were still there, but were generally black. With occasional green pines, beneath the gray trunks was spread a thick mantle of snow and from the brown rocks enclosing the deep channel of the Niagara River hung huge clusters of icicles, twenty feet in length, like silver pipes of giant organs. The tumultuous rapids appeared to descend more regularly than formerly over the steps which distinctly extended across the wide river. The portions of the British, or Horseshoe Fall, where the waters descend in masses of snowy whiteness, were unchanged by the season, except that vast sheets of ice and icicles hung on their margin but where the deep waves of sea-green water roll majestically over the steep, large pieces of descending ice were frequently descried on its surface. No rainbows were now observed on the great vapor cloud which shrouds forever the bottom of the fall, but we were extremely fortunate to see now plainly what I had looked for in vain at my last visit. The water rockets, first described by Captain Hall, which shot up with a train of vapor singly, and in flights of a dozen, from the abyss near Table Rock curved towards the east, and burst and fell in front of the cataract. Vast masses of descending fluid produce this singular effect, by means of condensed air acting on portions of the vapor into which the water is comminuted below. Altogether the appearance was most startling. It was observed at 1 p.m. from the gallery of Mr. Barnett's museum. The broad sheet of the American Fall presented the appearance of light green water and feathery spray, also margined by huge icicles, as in summer. The water rushing from under the vapor cloud of the two falls was of a milky whiteness as far as the ferry, when it became dark and interspersed with floating masses of ice. Here, the year before, from the pieces of ice being heaped and crushed together in great quantities, was formed a thick and high bridge of ice, completely across the river, safe for passengers for some time, and in the middle of it a Yankee speculator had erected a shanty for refreshments. Lately, at a dinner party, I heard a staff officer of talent, but who was fond of exciting wonder by his narratives, propose to the company a singular wager, a bet of 100 pounds that he would go over the falls of Niagara and come out alive at the bottom, no one being inclined to take him up, 
After a good deal of discussion as to how this perilous feat was to be accomplished, the plan was disclosed, to place on Table Rock a crane, with a long arm reaching over the water of the horseshoe fall, from this arm would hang, by a stout rope, a large bucket or cask, this would be taken up some distance above the fall, where the mill race slowly glides towards the cataract, here the adventurer would get into the cask, men stationed on the Table Rock would haul in the slack of the rope as he descended, and the crane would swing him clear from the cataract as he passed over. Here is a chance for any gentleman sportsman to immortalize himself. Sir James Alexander, the sloth, the sloth, in its wild condition, spends its whole life on the trees, and never leaves them but through force or accident, and, what is more extraordinary, it lives not upon the branches, like the squirrel and the monkey, but under them, suspended from the branches, it moves, and rests and sleeps. So much of its anatomical structure as illustrates this peculiarity it is necessary to state. The arm and forearm of the sloth, taken together, are nearly twice the length of the hind legs, and they are, both by their form and the manner in which they are joined to the body, quite incapacitated from acting in a perpendicular direction, or in supporting it upon the earth, as the bodies of other quadrupeds are supported by their legs. Hence, if the animal be placed on the floor, its belly touches the ground, the wrist and ankle are joined to the forearm and leg in an oblique direction, so that the palm or sole, instead of being directed downwards towards the surface of the ground, as in other animals, is turned inward towards the body, in such a manner that it is impossible for the sloth to place the sole of its foot flat down upon a level surface, it is compelled, under such circumstances, to rest upon the external edge of the foot, this, joined to other peculiarities in the formation, render it impossible for sloths to walk after the manner of ordinary quadrupeds, and it is indeed only on broken ground, when he can lay hold of stones, roots of grass, and see, that he can get along at all, he then extends his arms in all directions in search of something to lay hold of, and when he has succeeded, he pulls himself forward and is then enabled to trail himself along in the exceedingly awkward and tardy manner which has procured for him his name. Mr. Waterton informs us that he kept a sloth for several months in his room, in order to have an opportunity of observing his motions. If the ground were a rough he would pull himself forward in the manner described, at a pretty good pace, and he invariably directed his course towards the nearest tree. But if he was placed upon a smooth and well-trodden part of the road, he appeared to be in much distress, within doors, the favorite position of this sloth was on the back of a chair, and after getting all his legs in a line on the topmost part of it, he would hang there for hours together, and often with a low and plaintive cry would seem to invite the notice of his master, the sloth does not suspend himself head downward, like the vampire bat, but when asleep he supports himself from a branch parallel to the earth, he first seizes the branch with one arm, and then with the other, after which he brings up both his legs, one by one, to the same branch, so that, as in the engraving, all the four limbs are in a line. In this attitude the sloth has the power of using the forepaw as a hand in conveying food to his mouth, which he does with great address, retaining meanwhile a firm hold of the branch with the other three paws. In all his operations the enormous claws with which the sloth is provided are of indispensable service. They are so sharp and crooked that they readily seize upon the smallest inequalities in the bark of the trees and branches, among which the animal usually resides, and also form very powerful weapons of defense. 
the sloth has been said to confine himself to one tree until he has completely stripped it of its leaves, but Mr. Waterton says, during the many years I have ranged the forests, I have never seen a tree in such a state of nudity, indeed, I would hazard a conjecture, that, by the time the animal had finished the last of the old leaves, there would be a new crop on the part of the tree it had stripped first, ready for him to begin again so quick is the process of vegetation in these countries, there is a saying among the Indians, that when the wine blows the sloth begins to travel, in calm weather he remains tranquil, probably not liking to cling to the brittle extremities of the branches, lest they should break with him in passing from one tree to another, but as soon as the wind arises, and the branches of the neighboring trees become interwoven, the sloth then seizes hold of them and travels at such a good round pace, that anyone seeing him, as I have done, pass from tree to tree, would never think of calling him a sloth. Sierra Nevada, our snowy range of California, the dividing ridge of the Sierra Nevada is in sight from this encampment, accompanied by Mr. Proust. I ascended today the highest peak to the right, from which we had a beautiful view of a mountain lake at our feet, about 15 miles in length, and so entirely surrounded by mountains that we could not discover an outlet, we had taken with us a glass, but though we enjoyed an extended view, the valley was half hidden in mist, as when we had seen it before, snow could be distinguished on the higher parts of the coast mountains, eastward, as far as the eye could extend. It ranged over a terrible mass of broken snowy mountains, fading off blue in the distance. The rock composing the summit consists of a very coarse, dark, volcanic conglomerate. The lower parts appeared to be of a very slaty structure. The highest trees were a few scattered cedars and aspens. From the immediate foot of the peak we were two hours in reaching the summit, and one hour and a quarter in descending. The day had been very bright, still, and clear, and spring seems to be advancing rapidly. While the sun is in the sky the snow melts rapidly, and gushing springs cover the face of the mountain in all the exposed places, but their surface freezes instantly with the disappearance of the Sunday. The Indians of the Sierra make frequent descents upon the settlements west of the coast range, which they keep constantly swept of horses, among them are many who are called Christian Indians, being refugees from Spanish missions. Several of these incursions occurred while we were at Helvetia. Occasionally parties of soldiers follow them across the coast range, but never enter the Sierra. The party had not long before passed through a beautiful country. The narrative says, during the earlier part of the day our ride had been over a very level prairie, or rather a succession of long stretches of prairie, separated by lines and groves of oak timber, growing along dry gullies, which are tilled with water in seasons of rain, and perhaps, also, by the melting snows. Over much of this extent the vegetation was spare, the surface showing plainly the action of water, which, in the season of flood, the walking spreads over the valley. About one o'clock, we came again among innumerable flowers, and, a few miles further, fields of beautiful blue flowering lupin, which seems to love the neighborhood of water, indicated that we were approaching a stream. We here found this beautiful shrub in thickets, some of them being twelve feet in height. Occasionally. Three or four plants were clustered together, forming a grand bouquet, about 90 feet in circumference, and 10 feet high, the whole summit covered with spikes of flowers, the perfume of which is very sweet and grateful. A lover of natural beauty can imagine with what pleasure we rode among these flowering groves, which filled the air with a light and delicate fragrance. We continued our road for about half a mile, interspersed through an open grove of live oaks, which, 
in form, were the most symmetrical and beautiful we had yet seen in this country. The ends of their branches rested on the ground, forming somewhat more than a half sphere of very full and regular figure, with leaves apparently smaller than usual. The Californian poppy, of a rich orange color, was numerous today. Elk and several bands of antelope made their appearance. Our road now was one continued enjoyment, and it was pleasant riding among this assemblage of green pastures, with varied flowers and scattered groves, and, out of the warm, green spring, to look at the rocky and snowy peaks where lately we had suffered so much. Again, in the Sierra Nevada, our journey today was in the midst of an advanced spring, whose green and floral beauty offered a delightful contrast to the sandy valley we had just left. All the day snow was in sight on the butt of the mountain which frowned down upon us on the right, but we beheld it now with feelings of pleasant security, as we rode along between green trees and on flowers, with hummingbirds and other feathered friends of the traveler enlivening the serene spring air, as we reached the summit of this beautiful pass, and obtained a view into the eastern country, we saw at once that here was the place to take leave of all such pleasant scenes as those around us, the distant mountains were now bald rocks again, and, below, the land had any color but green. Taking into consideration the nature of the Sierra Nevada, we found this pass an excellent one for horses, and, with a little labor, or, perhaps, with a more perfect examination of the localities, it might be made sufficiently practicable for wagons. Fremont's travels, the grouse. We have but few European birds presenting more points of interest in their history than the grouse, a species peculiar to the northern and temperate latitudes of the globe dense pine forests are the abode of some, others frequent the wild tracts of heath-clad moorland, while the patches of vegetation scattered among the rocky peaks of the mountains, afford a congenial residence to others, patient of cold, and protected during the intense severities of winter by their thick plumage, they give animation to the frozen solitude long after all other birds have retired from the desolate scenery, their food consists of the tender shoots of pines, the seeds of plants, the berries of the arbutus and bilberry, the buds of the birch and alder, the buds of the heat, 